Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel's going to get us started with a scripture reading and a prayer. So this is a, actually I'd like to read Isaiah 9, 5, and 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, upon his shoulder dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful. From David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice, both now and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Almighty God, we do ask you to bless us in this wonderful week before the celebration of your son, our Savior. Bless all who, of those who listen to this uh, talk that might have opened hearts to the grace you wish to send them as Christmas gift. And bless us, um, be gifts, uh, you know, gift us your grace uh, in this next hour, we ask through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Nagel. Well, Father Nagel, I love the passage that we began with from Isaiah chapter 9. I love the, uh, the O antiphons because of a, a particular word, and that word is phenomenology. There we go. Oh. <laughs> Yesterday wow. we had, on last Thursday, we had the one-day Sherathon uh, to raise funds for Sacred Heart Radio, and I was trying to explain this to, to Ron, and he just was shaking his head, <laughs> saying, Tom, can, you're going to have to kind of ground it a little bit more sure. in human experience because I'm a little bit lost. So I'm <laughs> going to share it with you and, uh, and let that be the entry point for this, because in the course of this program, we're going to go through these different O antiphons. There are, um, <coughs> excuse me, I apologize for that. There are eight of these antiphons, oh, seven, sorry. Um, and each of these seven identify a particular title of Jesus or titles of Jesus. And a title of Jesus, like you heard in Isaiah chapter 9, is more than just like a, a nice descriptor or an accurate descriptor. It's an entry point. It's an entry point into the essence of who Jesus is. And Jesus is so big that he surpasses one title. He surpasses any one way that we as human beings uh, come to know who he is in himself, know the truth about who he is. And here's where phenomenology comes in. Phenomenology provides us with profiles or facets or entry points into the essence. And it brings up a profound truth that is not appreciated in the modern day. And that is that being objective, being a detached observer of reality, gives a different kind and a lesser degree of insight than the one who immerses himself in the object. Immersing oneself in the reality that is being considered brings about a more profound way of knowing that reality than the one who stands apart from it and observes it. And so I'm talking about the concept of scientific knowledge, mm. which is the detached observer, versus personal knowledge, which comes through immersing oneself in union with or in a relationship with the reality under consideration. And so I, for me, this is a, a, an incredibly important point to bring up because of the weakness of the modern age, which is this shunting towards scientific forms of knowing, and the fundamental way that we grow in faith, which involves both kinds of knowing, but must involve the personal knowing. Mm. Comments on that, Father Nagel? Well, I think you're so right. I, I, I probably couldn't have put it quite that way, but, um, but I do think that the, you know, Charles Taylor, a, a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher, has written a book called The Secular Age, or A Secular Age, talking about what you just said in, in the, the, that this age, for us, many of us, certainly those who are kind of leading our culture, would say the only kind of knowledge is that scientific detached knowledge, um, some sort of objective outside observer, um, measuring and uh, et cetera. But in terms of the faith, um, that that leaves out so much reality and and so much, as you say, the, the central reality of an encounter with Christ. I mean, there's lots of people who know about Jesus and know stuff, and I think sometimes that's our our faith formation is not really faith formation; it really is information giving over. Um, but in terms of an encounter with a person, 
um, that's that's something that is lacking. And so I do think that this is an age in which that the most important kind of knowledge is not even recognized and legitimated as knowledge. Um, the, to be able to have that, you call it the immersion into uh, the object. So I do think that's one of the reasons why the faith is, shake, is being shaken and, and is evaporating today, which I think it is, because we're not very good at knowing, uh, at knowing the world around us, let alone God. And yeah, on the other hand, we, we would think that we, we know a lot more about the world than those poor, uh, you know, ignorant people back in the Middle Ages or the ancient world, because we know, you know, how, where the sun really goes and we know all sorts of facts. And yet we don't, we, we're only, you know, getting a slice, one slice of reality in terms of the, um, our epistemology. How was that for another philosophical uh, idea? We, we our, our knowing is so limited that we're sort of, Blind, you know, blind in terms of the the truth and reality around us. And you know, it, it impacts our our attitude, our way of relating to the world around us, including our faith. So, for instance, objective knowledge, the scientific detached form of knowing, proceeds by the path of doubt. In other words, we never reach perfect certainty about anything, but we can always refine or improve the method by which we are examining it and thereby yield new or different insights. So scientific knowing proceeds by doubting. Personal knowing proceeds by trusting. Mm -hmm. And so as we give ourselves over, as we're willing to open ourselves to receive and be received by the reality that we are coming into, not just cognitive contact, but even union with, we proceed by way of trust. The more that we trust what has been revealed to us, the more that we give ourselves over to it, the deeper our penetration into that reality is. And you can see what a fundamental difference it is in our life of faith if you're always wondering about uh, the certainty of something, the solidity mm -hmm. of something. You're doubting whether, can we prove that that's true? Can we, can we prove? And, and unfortunately, that concept of proof lives only in the scientific mode of talking about things. So prove that God exists, or prove that Jesus is really the Son of God, or prove that the Catholic Church is, is right when it comes to this or that teaching. And the attempt, unfortunately, plays itself out as this systematic way of aligning all of these truths into a well-ordered pattern that then can be mastered by someone who's clever enough to memorize and able to, with agility, move around it. And, and that leaves someone separated from the reality of knowing, the reality of being in union with, the reality of giving self, oneself over to. And, and this might all sound just like rather highfalutin or abstract, but it actually, everything's at stake in this. Everything yeah. is at stake in our life and faith. If we, if we, if we simply say we're going to proceed by, by a mode of doubting and then refining versus trusting and giving oneself over. You know, I agree with you that how central this is, and I it, a couple points from from what you just said that might that might be able to illustrate uh, or underline what you said. One of them is the idea between doubting skepticism as opposed to trusting. And, and right here, I want to say that I I fully appreciate the scientific method. There's no there's no conflict between faith and science. It's, it, 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 that sort of thing. We do get knowledge from the scientific method, and we're not anti science at all. That being said, the idea of trusting in, in terms, not, not only, but it's certainly in uh, personal relationships, I just think, you know, the, entire, in, the idea of a marriage, if it's based on doubting and suspicion and, you know, prove to me that you're faithful, prove to me that you love me, that's going to be a real problem um, as opposed to, I trust you. Um, because I love you, I, I have trust in you. And it's, it's sort of that being the springboard. But I think another, another thing that sprang into my mind, Tom, as you were speaking there, about the current age, which I agree that the idea is, well, if it's not scientific, it's not knowledge. If it, that's, that's the way we really have to, that's the real knowledge. The other stuff is just sort of make-believe and, um, you don't, again, you're using your imagination. I think that something that might be effective in some ways, but not, especially those who aren't faithful or don't have, uh, or not religious in any sort of way is that the idea of the environment in terms of Native Americans. So I, I do think that sometimes 
uh, on the one hand, we have the scientific understanding of the world and of nature and the fact that, you know, it's biology, it's physics, it's chemistry, and this is what it is. And we need to know, we discover and we conquer nature. And, um, and we are skeptical about any of the ideas we have and we, we test them, we experiment, we have hypotheses that can be tested, proven true or false. And yet there's also this, this there's this admiration for the Native American relationship with nature. But that is not a scientific relationship. Now, sometimes, again, it could be romanticized. It could be, you know, but nevertheless, it, it's, it's there. And I think it's something that's valued by sort of the elite culture and the scientific world, even in terms of the scientists themselves. But to, to be able to look at them and say, okay, what do you admire about that? Um, is it because they are, in fact, immersed in nature and they do see um, a, a sense of the world in which the scientific viewpoint misses? And, and if so, if, if there's something that you're mind about, that, why don't you just go deeper into that and see what, what, what do they bring to the table that the sciences don't? And, and then, then we can start to talk about these other elements of God and, and our own faith and, and why it might apply to them. So again, I, that's the things that sprang into my mind as you were talking. Well, and, and I love it because you've, you've pointed to uh, several um, domains where we can appreciate the importance of personal knowing, knowing that proceeds by uh, the manner of union and trust. So you think about a husband and a wife, and, and the husband can say to a third party, my wife loves me. And the, the, who, the third party can say, well, objectively speaking, she could be deceiving you. Mm-hmm. She's just doing it for her own benefit. She's not doing it out of a sense of self-sacrifice and a true desire to give herself to you. You're being fooled. And the only answer that a person like that can, uh, the, the response to that third party is, you do not know my wife. You don't know her. If you were in the relationship with me, you would, you would come to understand, you'd come to see how wrong you are. You might be able to theoretically interpret the, those behaviors in that way, but you would be so wrong. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's crossing you know, domains from, I speak from the personal knowing to the person who is in the scientific standpoint and wants to doubt and wants to give an alternative explanation. That it, it's, it's apples and oranges, right? And, and, and this is where our hope is as we dig into these different titles of Jesus in these O antiphons, and, and you can see it in the titles of Jesus referenced to this child that was that to be born in Isaiah 9, 5, and 6. This same reality of these titles are not simply meant to be memorized. Put them on a poster, and you can say, I can tell you the 54 titles that are four, they, they are prophecies that are identifying the nature of Jesus Christ, when the coming Messiah, when he's born. You can have them memorized. But what about if you could experience those different dimensions of your relationship with Jesus. Who is Jesus intending to be for you, for your family, for your marriage, for, your, for this world, for your life? Isn't that so much more important, that, that reality of knowing because I've experienced Christ in that way? Mm-hmm. I think that that's like a really, really big theme for me on Sound Insight. I know we've talked about it in a hundred different ways, Father Nagel, through the right. years. But it's like a, it's a drum that we should never stop beating. Never stop beating. Amen. I do think this this first fifteen minutes of the show, this this topic, is the it really sums up the crisis of the church and faith today. I really do think so. That um, we don't know, we don't have communion with Christ, and we know about Him, but we don't know Him. Uh, at least it's, that's that's it's a tendency, and I, so I, I do think it's. And, the, and all the other programs and all the other uh, the projects and the initiatives and things that try to try to turn around this uh, decline of the faith are going to be, they're not going to be fruitful because unless it's based upon this idea of, of this union and having this encounter. So, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the word that I would use for the Native Americans in their relationship with nature is appreciation. Mm-hmm. They have a sense of appreciating what uh, the union with, that they have with the world around them yields insights. It yields insights into, oh, the weather's going to turn bad, or no, that won't grow here, 
or, oh, I see something happening to the crops here or something like that, that sense of appreciation. They, they have a, tr- a tremendous sense of wonder and care for that which they are in union with. Mm-hmm. And that gives rise to a way of knowing it that those who, again, look at it more objectively uh, and would attempt to use it just are not going to have. So uh, last comment on this is that the book I wrote on the Mass, and, mm. and, and in some ways the book on confession, was, the, uh, was precisely around this theme, that let's walk through the Mass and not so much first focus on the biblical roots or the historical way that it's unfolded or, uh, or references to um, uh, different theological ideas, but rather let's use the concept of event which is an in-breaking, a breaking in, a breaking open, and event that gives rise to an encounter. And so that's why the book is called The Mass, Four Encounters with Jesus That Will Change Your Life. Mm. That if you stop and say that the Mass isn't simply a ritual, in even a ritual established by Christ, but it's a, a place of encounter in these four different manifestations of the presence of Christ, then all of a sudden there's something dramatic that is at stake in every Mass. Mm-hmm. Are you open to the encounter? The encounter is going to be an event that actually calls forth from you a response because Jesus Christ sees you as approaching you and is asking something from you as the Mass unfolds. And you know what? It, it seems to have worked from the standpoint of it helped people see the Mass with new eyes rather than being spectators, which is a right. form of observing. Right. They become participants in that sense that the church was really asking for. Yeah, I, actually, I, I gave that book away to my parish. Um, this is some years ago. Uh, I think it's pr- fairly shortly after you wrote it. Um, so I, I do agree that that's, again, it's the, the same thing uh, that I was just talking about. Is this something that you simply look at and know in sort of an intellectual way? Or actually, is there an encounter? Is there a, a connection here where you you participate? You, I think you just signed, signed it up perfectly. It's it is a great, just a little plug. It's a great book, but it's centered upon the right idea too. Yeah, and and guess what? You're called to be immersed, to give yourself over fully into something, and Communion. it's out of that union that the, the the knowing will happen. Okay, so there's a very long introduction, Father Nagel. Huh? There oh, we go. The first segment of the program, <laughs> but. I think a very valuable one for those. I, I'm trying to honor some of the folks who listen will give me feedback and say, you know, I love when you, you, you do sort of the deep dive, when you go deeper into things. And, and you know, we're hungry for the, the meat, the, the, the meat. So when we come back, we're going to go back, not to the surface, not, not to dessert, but we're going to apply what you just heard us discuss in the first segment to these O antiphons. And we'll do that in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kernum with Father Kurt Nagel, the pastor of St. Monica's on Mercer Island. And so, Father Nagel, here we are. It's the last week of Advent. Yes. We're approaching the Feast of the Nativity of our Lord, Christmas, coming up on Saturday. And we're in the midst of the O Antiphons. The O Antiphons is, um, it, it actually began on Friday when we uh, were recording this program on the 17th, was the first day of these O Antiphons. But it's something that uh, is, well, Father, do you want to talk a little bit about the O antiphons? So, you know, the, uh, first of all, let me just, again, a little bit more context here. I, as I said in past programs, I, I love Advent, probably my favorite season. I know that's maybe unusual, but, um, and I've, you know, prayed the O antiphons for years, but I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever gone this deep into them. So I'm, I'm going to be learning something and have, I think I'm going to have my brain expanded and my soul uh, stretched as well here. But the O antiphons um, are, so the antiphon is, it's a, a prayer before the prayer, so to speak. It's the beginning, um, the, the introductory uh, prayer for the Psalms of evening prayers, the O antiphons that we're talking about specifically here. Uh, the week before Christmas, and if if you sing, so this is we're talking about the liturgy of the hours, uh, where the priests sing out of the breviary, uh, or say pray, uh, priests and uh, religious, and so evening prayer vespers is sometimes, uh, certainly in religious houses, oftentimes uh, sung or prayed with uh, solemnity, etc., with um, lots of uh, depth and, and and beauty in the liturgy. 
And so the antiphons, again, is a chance uh, to sort of highlight um, this feast day, but also the actual psalm or scripture reading that is going to follow. Um, so the Ofa antiphons, the fourth week of, of uh, Advent, we're really starting to turn to Christ, Mary and Christ. So the first two weeks of Advent are usually considered sort of eschatological. They're, they're about the end times, the second coming of Christ. The third week is all centered around John the Baptist, the, the scriptures, etc. And then on the fourth week, now we're turning to Jesus himself and his mother. And so this are, it, it becomes more Christmassy, so to speak, uh, at this point. And so the, the O antiphons fr are from the early Middle Ages, I think. So these are ancient, ancient uh, hymns or, or, or prayers. And it, it begins by, by addressing Jesus himself. The O just comes from, again, an, explanation, an exclamation of wonder of all the different sort of uh, facets and qualities that are going to be uh, Pray this time. So that that's kind of my understanding of some background. No, that's tremendous. I, I appreciate that, um, and I think it's something that again most Catholics are probably not going to get a lot of access to because right. <laughs> excuse me, they are part of the liturgy of the hours. So I, I love that we have a chance to dig into these oh antiphons in the course of this program, and it's something, folks, that. If you're interested in learning more about these, it's not that complicated to find them. Just type in O antiphons and you will uh, in Google it or DuckDuckGo it and you'll be led to it pretty quickly. It's not that complicated. But the richness is something to be explored. It's something to be reflected upon. That's what we're going to do today. So go ahead, Father. Can I interrupt just briefly? I think for the people who do their their experience of it probably is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, if you've sung that song in Advent or other times, it's all about the O antiphons. Um, if you look at the verses, so I, I'm just saying you probably haven't. Most of you probably have not prayed the the, uh, the actual liturgy hours, but many of you have sung that hymn uh, based on it. So again, you have some familiarity with some of these titles, probably. Anyway, that's a great point. That's a very good point, Father. I didn't I didn't even think of that, but yes, yes, you're correct. All right, so let's begin with December the seventeenth. And uh, we'll, I'll read the, the antiphon for the day, and then, Father, you can um, offer some reflections, and we'll go from there. So December 17th, O wisdom of our God Most High, guiding creation with power and love, come to teach us the path of knowledge. So this one, I, I just think of wisdom as, a, as it, this is very much, well, it's an Old Testament. When I think about it, I think about this Old Testament way of referring um, to the divine, it's it's. It, I actually, I should back up and say it's a. Scriptural scholars will say it's a complicated question. Uh, just the use of wisdom and as that title of uh, the divine power, the divinity, in various books of the Old Testament. But it, it is that whole idea of um, the Sophia in the Greek, or um, the idea of this, the providential mind of God at work um, in create here guiding creation with power and love so I, I do think about that I always think of this particular title just connecting with creation um, and that power of God to of divine providence to be uh, in our lives and moving our lives and so Jesus is that power uh, you know who he, he is our guide he is the one who has mapped out our life and is present at all of it the intentionality and the uh, purpose meaning of our lives is all built in here so that again that's what sparks kind of from wisdom um, from me so i i love this one because i think it's so relevant to the right now moment like so the last 18 19 almost 20 months in this covid impacted world one of the cries i think that is made towards god towards heaven is where are you god in the midst of all of this and the gift of wisdom that spiritual gift is the ability to sense and see how God is at work in creation, in the things that are unfolding, and ordering them towards the end for which he created it. That nothing that is happening here on earth is catching God off guard, or is something that surprises God, or is something that is beyond his ability to incorporate and order to his redemptive purposes. And, and so I see that here, a wisdom of our God Most High, guiding creation 
guiding this moment in creation, brothers and sisters, the last 18 months, the Lord is still guiding creation with power. He's not powerless. And with love. He has his loving will to bring salvation to this world at work, even in the last 18 months, if you have the ability to see it. And then what do we need? Come, O Lord Jesus, come, you who are wisdom, teach us the path of knowledge. And that's exactly what we're talking about, knowing. How are we going to know that God is, in fact, guiding what's happening in these days with power and love? Well, it's by immersing ourselves in the relationship with Jesus, who is wisdom himself. And if we can be in union with Jesus, say, Jesus, please, you who are wisdom, please give me an overflow. Help me to come to know the mind of Christ, your mind, O Lord, so that I can sense and see in the things that are unfolding that, yes, you are guiding this moment in history with your power and love. You know, I I hadn't really thought of it in terms of the current situation, but when you mentioned that, what sprang out in my mind is just the suspicion we have of the very concept of wisdom. Um, and I think it's it's hard for us today to speak about the wise or wisdom without irony. Um, and I think part of it is, I think we, we feel we're suffering from a lack of wisdom and guidance, uh, certainly in terms of our earthly sort of leaders, um, from whatever direction. I mean, I just think that, the, I said before, I think there's a perceived sl- a crisis of of authority and leadership in all all facets of our of our lives right now, and so the idea of God's wisdom being there because we look around, you know, there seems to be a lack of wisdom. So, and can we even consider? Is there anybody you would call wise? You know, and and it, again, without being ironic, um, and so I do think there's something from what you just said there, Tom, in terms of don't worry. You know, not only do we have a wise leader, we have wisdom itself himself is guiding this, um, guiding even what seems to be chaos and mess. So I do think, I hadn't thought about it, but I, I do think that's probably one of the reasons it speaks so strongly today. Well, and I think the, um, the Augustinian tradition, um, stretching from Augustine up to Bonaventure, that Christ is the interior master, mm-hmm. and, and he is the interior master through his wisdom. That how does his being master of our lives, of the situations we're facing and of the greater world, how is that operating? Through his wisdom. And so if we can grow in wisdom, and and always pray for that. Pray for that, brothers and sisters. Pray to grow in a union with Christ who is wisdom. That the wisdom granted to you, baptism and increased in confirmation, that spiritual gift, that it would be stirred into flame, that it would grow, so that you would have a sense of peace and confidence that the Lord's got this and he's got you in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. I think that would just be a beautiful gift to, to experience in this Advent season. And, I'd be, and even to be able to identify and be able to, to sense and notice God's provident, wise providence in our lives. Um, it, anyway, I, I do think yeah, that I try to tap into that gift that you've all the baptized and confirmed have been given. Um, to, so, yeah. And you know, Father, last point I'll say on that. You used the word providence a couple of times. I will so regularly pray that the Father's almighty hand of mercy would providentially lead, guide, and protect me and my family. Mm-hmm. I, th- those words I chose very intentionally, and I experience tremendous comfort when I pray in that way. Father, may your almighty hand of mercy, because I love that. It it combines together power and favor, this favor that I don't deserve, like power and love. May your almighty hand of mercy, like that hand resting all over my life, lead, provide, and protect me and my family. It is so comforting to, guess what, to experience it, to encounter it, not just to say, this is a theologically correct idea that our faith confirms. Right. But to know it and, and, and to, to sense it, to deeply know it. Oh, yes, and, and you could also feel it. It can show up as a feeling, as peace. Well, I, you know, one, I've noticed recently in the confessional that a sin, and oftentimes I'm not sure it is a sin, but it's something that can, people confess is the inability to trust in God. Um, 
the anxiety, lack of trust, just what you've said in terms of not seeing God being present in their lives in the world. I've so I've noticed an uptick in this, um, just like I did. You know, I saw you can the confessional is a, a great predictor, sort of in some ways, of the world outside, in the sense of you could, you could see pornography skyrocketing back back twenty years ago, but today I, I see this whole idea of I, I'm failing in my trust of the Lord. I can't. I I, I don't. I don't trust him. I, I'm anxious about what's going to happen to me. I don't know what's happening. So again, I just see evidence of, of the need for this divine wisdom. So that's so interesting because uh, I must be ahead of the curve <laughs> because I've been confessing sins against faith, which is a lack of trust, um, you know, for 20 years. It's, and, it, and it really came from uh, St. John Paul II. And we've talked about this, right? When he when he talked about the facets of original sin as pride, disobedience, and, tr- and mistrust, that he considered this an age of mistrust, that that dimension of original sin was prominent and throbbing. And so it, it really struck home for me that the deepest expression of faith and of trust is to entrust, to place oneself into hands of. And so uh, almost every single confession I confess the sin of the unwillingness to place myself freely, completely, and forever into God's hands in all the details of my life. Well, but this kind of t- turns back to what we were speaking at the beginning of the program, the difference between skepticism and trust. I think some of this could be coming out of being infected or being influenced by this, the culture itself that that we are, it's really hard to be, uh, to have a trust of providence if all you have is that uh, outsider's perspective of skepticism. Um, that's not a providential Yeah, because you mindset. want control, right? Yeah. You, want, you want to be independent, because that's it. That, to be well, detached and objective. Right. Yeah, it's an objective sense of control. And so how hard is it to trust if you have to give over control, if you're all of a sudden vulnerable, right, and dependent? That, that those, are, those ways of relating to not just little things in life, but to the entirety of life, that, that is, boy, that's a burden. That is a heavy burden laid upon our age. If all that is fostered in people, personally, professionally, educationally, formatively, is the objective scientific mindset, that approach to life and relationships is, it's a heavy burden to bear when it comes to living the life of faith. Well, the whole idea of control. I mean, I, I do think that, so again, not anti-science, but what science does is it gives the illusion of control because it, it does give us power. Uh, again, think about medical science, which I'm all for. I, I love anesthesia. Um, but it gives us the idea that because we control many more areas of our lives than somebody, you know, centuries ago, that we can think that we control our lives. Um, we can control the physical outward uh, aspects, perhaps, to a greater extent. But it, it could be that could be a curse in some ways. And again, I'm not saying throw out modern medicine, but it's a challenge that the people before us did not have. They knew they were not in control. Um, it was much easier to say, Lord, um, I'm, I have to trust you because I, I, I have no illusion that I control my life. Whereas we can have the illusion until it all crashes in. Well, and this this actually would be a nice lead into the next um, the next antiphon, and that is, even if we can't control the totality of life, we can control the painful, difficult, uncomfortable circumstances to make our lives rather comfortable and soft. And that then makes it again more difficult to say, why would I want to surrender all of this and open myself to God if that's going to mean a cross and suffering, difficulty, pain, uh, self-sacrifice, uh, extending oneself in in ways that um, that that will be um, that'll be a dying to self. Th- these things are not going to be attractive. So, um, go ahead, Father. Do you want to nope, say anything no, about that? No. Nope. Okay, great. All right. So let's let's get into December eighteenth then. O leader of the house of Israel, giver of the law to Moses on Sinai. Come to rescue us with your mighty power. I'll read it one more time. O leader of the house of Israel, giver of the law to Moses on Sinai, come to rescue us with your mighty power. A couple things here. Um, 
this struck me is the idea of the leader of the house of Israel. Um, and this is this kind of speaks to again it's going back into the Old Testament to some extent, but I think the the whole fraught relationship with uh, Christianity and Judaism. But uh, it, Jesus is including this this whole um, uh, covenant, you know, this covenant background and and this relationship with the Jewish tradition and the law. So, giver of the law to Moses on Sinai, Jesus is, again, scriptures, the New Testament is always about the second Moses, um, the the, the new and and, uh, powerful Moses who gives the law to us, his, his new law. But the idea of a lawgiver is itself kind of, the idea of this powerful figure that's coming to rescue us with the law. And by the law, I simply mean this, this, this notion of what you were just talking about at some level, that um, there is a way in which we are going to be bound and by which that's going to be actually um, good for us. And it's going to be saving to, to follow Christ's law uh, and to recognize him as lawgiver. Um, and so I'm not sure that's necessarily what most people uh, sort of on the fringes of, of faith would think of Jesus as. He would be seen as just the opposite of this, He's come to do away with this. Um, he's the nice, gentle God, as opposed to that lawgiver from the Old Testament. But in fact, um, he is powerful um, in that sense of the commandment. So that's kind of um, an embracing and a, an in fulfillment of all the Moses was. Yeah, this is a, a great reflection, Father. It makes me think about. Too often we think of the law and laws as prison bars. Break the law, you get in prison rather than the um, guardrails. And, and if the law of Moses is our guardrails on our walk of faith, on the path we walk as disciples of Jesus, you know, he doesn't do away with the law by saying, okay, I'm breaking you out of prison, but rather I'm going to give you the, the grace to walk the path that these guardrails provide for you. That that's how he's going to rescue us from constantly breaking through the guardrails and causing a tremendous accident that is so damaging to our lives. And, and for me, what it does also is it personalizes the law. That breaking God's law isn't about, uh, first of all, the letter of the law. It's about the relationship. That the first thing that we're damaging is the relationship. We're breaking a heart more than breaking a law. But yes, we're breaking a law as well. So it's that whole personalization. Right, the union That again. you can, again, scientifically identify, objectively identify, here are the behaviors to do, here are the behaviors not to do. And if that's all you do is follow the behaviors, then you're a Pharisee. But if you're missing the heart, right, you're observing the things that I ask, but your heart is far from me. That, no, the Lord wants the heart. And by the way, if your heart is with him, then you're going to also follow the path. So this is what, uh, for me, is so beautiful, is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to lead you on the path, and you can actually follow the path. And, and, and that's ultimately what the law is. It's a law of love. Again, what you just said, it sort of seems very timely. I think in America the last 18 months, I think this, this question of law is, is before us. Maybe we, they wouldn't, we would not think of it in just these terms, but the idea of the sort of the, the destructive sense of the law in terms of, um, again, the police or you know, policing and rules of policing and, and all that sort of, but then also the good side, you know, the, the positive life-giving sense of the law. If we don't, if it breaks down and, you know, sort of chaos ensues, I think we recognize, oh, wait a minute, there are, guardrails are necessary. Um, there is this, again, not exactly the terms we're talking about here, but, but this idea of a sort of a dysfunctional sense of the law or action, but also the life-giving necessary element of the law in our lives as well. So I think that we as a culture are even thinking in terms and debating and questioning that this, this whole concept of what is the law to us and what is it, what's life-giving and what's, what's in need of reform? Yeah, we could talk so much more about this, right? So the, the law of God is expressed in the natural law. And where's the natural law written? In our hearts. So there's something about the heart that is connected to the natural law. What's the expression of the natural law in in the expression of faith? It's the Ten Commandments. And so somehow we'll discover those commandments that are externally present, presented to us on Sinai, written in our hearts, if we know how to read our hearts. And so that's that, again, that intimate connection between the two to help us 
live well in the light of the God who created the world and us to live well in this world. So, well, Father, we're up against a break. When we come back, we're going to continue on. Unless you want to make any other comments about December 18th, we'll go on to December 19th. Back in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel, and we're talking about the O antiphons. There are seven antiphons going from December 17th through the 23rd, found in the Liturgy of the Hours. And uh, we're reflecting on them as entry points into the relationship with Jesus. They're not just uh, seven titles of Jesus to be memorized, but they're entry points into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Discover Jesus in a new dimension. Experience and encounter him after the manner that these antiphons are expressing. So December 19th, Father. O root of Jesse's stem, sign of God's love for all his people, come to save us without delay. O root of Jesse's stem, sign of God's love for us, uh, love for all his people, come to save us without delay. I guess what jumps out to me here. the, the idea of Jesus as the root, I, I tend to think of him more as the fruit of Jesse's stem in the sense of um, if, you know, the genealogies uh, of, of the New Testament and the Gospels, it's, you know, this idea of the, Jesus um, is like the culmination from, of David's line. So David's the son of Jesse. And so he, in all these generations um, follow, um, for instance, in Matthew's gospel, the beginning of the gospel. And so Jesus is the culmination. And that's, that's the incarnation. But this is talking about, he's also the root of this all. He's, he is the one that's, that's, that's giving life to this very idea and this, this, this dynasty, this, this, this conception of kingship. That, yes, it's, it's kind of the incarnation right there. You know, here, here is the, the word. This is the second person who's going to take on this human nature here at the end of the life, the, the fruit or the flower of the stem. But that, don't forget that he's not just the end result. He's the cause and he's the, the beginning and he's the seed of it, the power of it all as well. So I didn't even go there. I like that. Uh, it's sort of alpha and omega. That the, the root is Jesus as alpha, as source, as origin. Yeah, I, I, th- I, I would think of him more, especially in the Christmas season, as you know, Emmanuel, God with us, right. right? So to stop and say, no, wait a minute, he's also the hidden source of this desire, this will to save. Um, and I, for me, I, I, I focused, I was kind of reflecting more on this God's love, that he, the sign of God's love come to save us, that one of the most profound expressions of God's love for you is that he longs to come close to you and save you without delay, that there are places in the hearts and in the lives of those who are listening right now where you, dear listeners, know or you're coming to realize what you're facing is beyond your ability to figure out, to manage, to take, to, to conquer. You need an outside source of power to deal with this. And that's Jesus. He out of his love for you, not because you begged him in the right way, knew the right formula, uh, or earned it in some way, but simply because he loves you, he wants to draw close to you as Savior. And he will do so without delay. He's coming. And that's the beautiful gift of Advent. It's not that we're going towards Christmas. It's that God is coming towards us, mm. that Jesus Christ is God made manifest not just 2,000 years ago, but right now, here today in your life. So, yeah, that's kind of where I went. Yeah, I, well, I think that's powerful. And kind of, for me, it leads into the next one, but I do think that idea of Savior, um, the, the outside source, uh, be, he's, the, he's the rescuer, he's also the one sending. Um, so I guess that's what I think the root of the stuff that, um, anyway, so I, I agree that that's always been kind of a, a beautiful one of the old antiphons for me. So anyway, so that's one of my favorites. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I didn't know that. All right. Well, let's, um, let's do one more, and we'll take a, our last break, and then we'll have a chance to hopefully do maybe one more after that. Okay, so now we're on December the 20th, looking at the O Anaphons. December 20th is, O Key of David, opening the gates of God's eternal kingdom, 
Come and free the prisoners of darkness. O key of David, opening the gates of God's eternal kingdom, come and free the prisoners of darkness. You know, I, I have trouble ever thinking of keys uh, without the idea of um, the Petrine office and stuff. But, you know, the, the key of David, you can also think back, what is it, Isaiah 22 or what it was, the, uh, Eliakim, the, 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 the great official of David, who's the key, who is given the keys. Um, and I, I was thinking about the idea of uh, rescuing the prisoners of darkness. So there's two things going on here for me. There's the idea of the God's eternal kingdom. So Jesus is the one who controls entrance there. But I also think of him going down into hell on Holy Saturday and go, breaking into hell and taking out the prisoners there and the sense of it's both and um, to open the doors of hell to those or again, that, that sense of those who are waiting for um, Adam and Eve and the rest of the famous homily to bring out the souls who have been trapped in sin. Uh, not necessarily the damned, but those who are trapped in sin, or, or at least have been shut out of heaven, and bring them into God's kingdom. Uh, sort of again, this this um, the one who who has the ability to open doors. Um, so again, I was thinking in both terms: the going to rescue, another way of rescuing. Um, hey, you know what? I have the key. And so, uh, again, the church also has that, has been given that key of David, um, the, the sense of Jesus' own power uh, of binding and loosing. And the, again, this church, this body that's giving us access to this experience of complete union with God. So the point you just made at the very end is sort of where my reflections were beginning. I tend to be more of like personalization and existential in, in how I look at these so I was focused on freeing the prisoners of darkness. And, and so I kind of go to things like, do we realize that being in darkness is a kind of prison? And if we are not living in the light of God, the, the light of who God is and what God has for us and has done for us and wants to do in our lives, we're laboring in a kind of prison. And what a sadness. And, and the Lord is coming to literally free us free us from darkness, that he wants to bring light into our lives, especially at those places where we're feeling confused, overwhelmed, anxious, discouraged, mm -hmm. in the dark. And I, I link it to God's eternal kingdom. And for me, that would be another weakness of our age. I was talking about it with Kerry on Friday, the concept that Father Francis Martin, the biblical scholar, mm -hmm. um, he talked about the weakness of our age is that we live in a closed system, meaning that everything that is, is visible and measurable in terms of the world. Mm -hmm. That there isn't a dimension of spirit, a dimension of transcendence, a dimension of God. Everything is imminent. Everything is closed in on what is visible and measurable. Even a concept of God must be contained imminently. Mm -hmm. And so this breaks that open. And if we can allow the dimension of transcendence, of life beyond this world as our our goal, right? If we talk about root of Jesse as the origin, well, here's the goal, that Jesus is opening the door for us to reach the goal of our life, which is life beyond this world. So for me, that that's kind of where my mind went. And it connects again with sort of the theme that we've had today of the limitations and the, the, the sort of the blinders of, of our current understanding of what knowledge and what truth is. Um, again, the idea that if, if it's not measurable, if it's not to an objective outside observer, it's not true, it's not real. It's, it, the limit, that's the prison part of it. Uh, amen. All right, well, we're up against another break, Father. When we come back, we're going to have time for one more. When I say we, I mean you. Oh. So you're going to have a chance to reflect on any one of these last three. So you can you, you, you got a minute here to pick, okay? And then we're going to dive into right. the last one in a minute on Sound Insight. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern with Father Kurt Nagel, and we're reflecting on the O antiphons. And oh, woe is us, Father. We're not going to get through all seven, but we got through four. Pretty good. And we're going to get a fifth one in. And so, Father, you can pick the fifth, uh, the, the last one we're going to get a chance to talk about today. Well, I was thinking about the next one, O Radiant Dawn, but we kind of covered that in terms of the darkness. So you, could, you can apply a lot of that there. And 
I was thinking about December 22nd, O, o King of All the Nations. Great. O King of All Nations and Keystone of the Church, come and save man whom you formed from the dust. O King of All Nations and Keystone of the Church, come and save man whom you formed from the dust. So I, I guess I picked that one because it sort of sums up the savior element and the power element of Christ. But as king, again, you know from past experiences that Christ the king is one of my favorite solemnities. And this idea of king of all nations and the keystone of the church. So without him, it falls apart, right? The keystone. And, and the idea of this ruler on sitting on this throne as the keystone of our lives. Without, without him as our king, our lives fall apart. So I was just thinking in terms, um, if I was going to do sort of that, that personal thing, um, the pers- try to personalize spiritually this, this O Antiphon, I would just see him as the ruler that gives order uh, to the lives that we need to lead. Uh, because he is the, the one who's all powerful. He formed us from the dust and he's our savior and protector. And so he has to sit on the throne as keystone over the arch that we've constructed of our thoughts, words, and actions of our lives. Amen. What a great place to end. To, you, you touched upon both things. That for me, it's so important, brothers and sisters, for you and for me to know that Jesus is king of kings, king of all presidents, prime ministers, over all rulers. He does reign as king. But for us, existentially and personally, have we welcomed the king into our hearts, our homes, our lives, our marriages, our families, over our finances, over our gifts, over the time that we have, over what we do with our lives? Welcome Jesus as king. In fact, beg him to come as king. Father, you've heard me say this how many times on the program, that one of the prayers that I regularly turn to is I ask Jesus to come and conquer in me all that resists him. Because we don't just willingly accept Jesus as king. Some parts of us do, but other parts of us are hmm. in rebellion and need to be conquered. And so I can pray that prayer. Jesus, come, be the king, and conquer in me all that resists you. Last sec- uh, 45 seconds, Father. Yeah, I sometimes think of myself as a rebellious province of the king. It's not just the parts of me. I think sometimes the, the whole thing needs to be um, redone. But I guess... the. Uh, um, uh, the idea of the king of kings resistance and and yet he's a good and just king he is the good king he's not someone who's to come to destroy us he's not someone to take it to control us he's not one to squeeze something out of us he is the good king the wise king uh bringing light to our lives and so you know welcome him that's what we're about on christmas is welcoming our king amen to that well, Father Nagel, thank you for being with me, walking through this program, discussing the O antiphons. Uh, we do hope and pray that you have a blessed Christmas. Father, maybe you could end the program with a blessing. Certainly. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God of the universe, of all creation, we ask your blessings upon us. You blessed us with your Son uh, at his first coming in Bethlehem. We ask you to continue to bless us with his presence, that we might welcome him as our King, King of Kings and the Prince of Peace. Bless all here who are listening, all those who, wherever they happen to be, that they might have a wonderful uh, Christmas uh, celebration and that they might truly be good and worthy servants of the King. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.